Bronx. I am here with Bobby Gonzalez, a Bronx native and a multicultural motivational speaker, poet, and storyteller. Bobby has two really amazing books, Taino Zen and The Last Puerto Rican Indian. And he also goes around to schools and museums sharing Taino and native culture with young people and people of all ages. So welcome, Bobby. Ah, glad to be here. Glad to be with you. And yeah, it's, uh, I've been in the Bronx my entire life. Um, I have to tell people when I was coming up, the Bronx was bilingual, English and Yiddish. <laughs> Then it became English-Spanish. However, now, in 2018, the fastest-growing ethnic group in the people from West Africa. Oh, I did not know that. Oh, yes. Take a, a, a walk up and down the Grand Concourse one day soon, and you'll see the difference. Yeah. And that's what life is all about, change. It's beautiful. Yes, absolutely. So tell me a little bit about growing up in the Bronx. Well... And if you're if you're willing to share when that was, sure. Uh, <laughs> my parents moved here in the South Bronx in spring of 1952, and sometimes we would visit our cousins on Fox Street. We had a couple on Eagle, and when you came to those blocks, there was nothing but tenement buildings. And in the summertime, it seemed like there were a million people out in the street because in those days, very few people had air conditioning. They, they didn't have computer games. <laughs> so everybody was out in the street. It was a, a different world. Here we are. And a common diversion for us in those days, well, there were several. Everything was so inexpensive. Uh, there were two or three movie theaters in every neighborhood. Unlike today. So when I was a boy, I lived near the hub. On 49th and 3rd, you had the RKO Royal, the Lowe's National, the Bronx Theater. And I remember as a kid going to the Bronx Theater on a Saturday, three movies for a quarter. Oh, and and you, weren't, uh, you weren't cheating them if you went to three movies. You were, that was the deal. That was the deal. Because I remember me growing up in the 90s. It was one movie for $5, but you could see two or three if you snuck into oh, the other theaters. okay, yeah. That's <laughs> my, my childhood life of crime. And um, now there are no movie theaters really in the Bronx. We have Whitestone, which closed up right. in the Northeast. And then we have Concourse Multiplex Theater, which is very small and, and unfortunately very run down. And you have the one up uh, in Bay Plaza. Yes, and okay. the AMC in Bay Plaza. But we don't have, like you said, three theaters in one area. No, those days are gone. Also, I didn't live too far from Yankee Stadium, so if we had nothing to do, the guys and I said, okay, let's go catch a ball game. And a bleacher seat would cost 75 cents. Oh, I'm going to cry. I'm and literally going to shed tears now. And then once my father took me to Yankee Stadium, I don't know what my birthday was, he says, and he walked up to the box office. I said, I want to give my son the best seat in the house. First row behind home plate. And the guy said, hey, mister, that's $3.50. My father said, I don't care. Yeah, I want to splurge. So $3.50. That same seat now will cost you a couple thousand. I tried to get season tickets very foolishly. I was like, oh, I live near Yankee Stadium again. I'm back home. Um, now I'm an adult. I want to get season tickets. Thousands. Thousands of dollars for Your season tickets. Your best bet is to investigate the Staten Island Yankees. Yeah. That's a lot more reasonable. But it's Staten Island, so. <laughs> oh, just me. So, so it was a different ethnic mix when I, when we moved into the Bronx, and we lived near Morris Avenue, which was all Italian back then. And every time the uh, African Americans or the Latinos would try to walk through there, 
we encountered resistance, which wow. is to say it mildly. So one day I sat down with this old Italian man. I said, what's the problem? How come you're always beating us up? And he gave me a, a pretty good answer. He says, well, when we moved in, the Irish and the Germans used to beat us up. Now it's your turn. And he told me the most unbelievable story. He said once he went, this is an Italian man, he made the mistake once of walking into an Irish church and trying to make confession. Mm-hmm. And the priest threw him around and said, go to, go, go to your church. But eventually we, everyone got along, started to date each other, intermarry and... West Side, all a West Side Story. Yep. <laughs> and uh, now it's, it's a different world, but it's always been like that nonstop change. And I grew up in the Melrose Houses, which is a remarkable... All, each housing project has its own personality, its own great stories. Who came from the Melrose Houses? Uh, Bobby Sanabria, uh, J.J. Walker, who you may recall from the show Good Times, Mr. Dynamite. Yeah. He came from Melrose. Um, a young man who has a Super Bowl ring, Willie Colon Jr., the football player with the New York Jets. Okay. He came from the Melrose Project. That's an old ring. <laughs> yeah. Jets have not been there in a while. I recently received a phone call from the New York Times, a reporter saying he wanted background information on the Melrose for me. From me. I said, what do you want to know about the Melrose Houses? He says, well, the new president of the NBA Players Association is a young lady called Michelle Roberts, and she came from Melrose. Wow. And so I said, you see, people like that, people like Sonia Sotomayor, they grew up in the South Bronx in the projects, and they went on and did very well. And what's important for me for those people is that they turned around and gave back. Yes. So, you know, one of the most important things for me being from the Bronx is, yes, make your career, make your way, be successful. But we raised you. This community, this this land raised you. So no matter where you end up, you need to turn around and pull someone up from the Bronx with you. Yeah, it's like my mother used to always tell me, uh, we're not put here to take care of ourselves. We were put here to take care of each other. And uh, all those people I mentioned, they always come back. They always give back. And that's the great story. They all cared about the common good. Yeah, and um, in terms of these shifting populations, so like you said, we had the Irish and the Germans, and then we had the Italians, and then we had the Puerto Ricans in the 1950s. That's when my grandparents came to the Bronx also from the island. And now we have people from all over. Um, but what what causes do you think that social tension between groups that already exist and groups that are coming in? Well, my personal belief is that it's in our DNA. So if you went back to uh, the days when we all lived in caves, people in, who lived in one cave thought that the people who lived in the cave on the other side of the mountain were different and possibly inferior. So I think it's uh, in our DNA to be skeptical about the other but we've made a, a lot of progress in the past century or two, I think. And we are aware that that's a, a wrong way of thinking. Most of us believe that. Yeah, yeah. And I will say most of us. But what's good is, I think you're correct. I think the Bronx really has progressed on that front. Mm. And we can live in a community with people from all over, you know. Um, and like, I think our community benefits from that. So I can go out to Southern Boulevard right now and I can buy Mexican tacos and West African, you know, bread and all these other, you know, I can enjoy the cultures Mm. of the world just staying in the Bronx. But in terms of preserving culture, so we're in the 21st century, we're in an age of technology 
and you call yourself the last Puerto Rican Indian. So tell me a little bit about that. What is that like for you? Well, I am not the last Puerto Rican Indian. Uh, I use that as the title of my book to catch people's attention. Yeah. Um, it was meant to be ironic because we're still very much alive. Uh, we, we keep hearing all the time about these comprehensive DNA tests, uh, scientifically proving that the majority of people in Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic are actually Taino and don't know it. And I've been on a mission. This began in about 1989, when a group of us got together here in New York City and began the Taino revival movement. All right, and later on we found out that it had uh, taken place in other places uh, in Pittsburgh, believe it or not, in the 1970s. The head of the American Indian Center there was a Taino from- Puerto Ricans Port in Pittsburgh. <laughs> oh, yes, we're- We've made it everywhere. <laughs> yep, uh, and then, there were groups, and they're, they're thriving in both Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic and Cuba. We've been in touch with people in uh, Jamaica and even the Bahamas, you know, where our ancestors came from. So I've been going out there, connecting and raising awareness about uh, our Taino heritage, but also at the same time, uh, reassuring people I'm also part of my African and my Spanish-European heritage as well. I embrace it all. It's all good. Yes, and tell people... A little bit about what Taino is, what Taino means, because um, people may be more familiar with um, North American tribes such as Navajo or Cherokee, but may not be as familiar with Caribbean tribes such as Taino. Well, I'm occasionally asked, Mr. Gonzalez, how could you be a Native American? Your last name is Gonzalez. And I point out that more than 90% of the indigenous peoples of the Western Hemisphere live in so-called Latin America. So there may be as many as 50 million native people in Central and South America and the Caribbean. Who are the Taino? We were the ones who discovered Columbus. He was lost. And in 1492, our homelands included Puerto Rico, the Republic, Cuba, Jamaica, the Bahamas, Cuba, all those islands of the Greater Antilles. And we used to travel. We used to go up to Florida, up north, uh, back down to South America. And we had neighbors um, who were called by the Spaniards Caribes, Caribs. By the way, the Caribs were not cannibals, all right? That's something they made up as a legal pretext in order to enslave them. And a couple years ago, the Caribs uh, took back the original name, Calinago, because they said the Caribes was a name uh, pushed on them. Imposed so, on them. And from there, we get the word Caribbean. Right. And most native tribes, especially in the north, have two names. The name they call themselves and the names outside us call them. So you mentioned the Navajo. They call themselves Diné. Cherokee call themselves Chalagi, you know, and so on and so on. And I think it's interesting to have, um, to preserve a culture that has been impacted by colonialism. Um, so you mentioned 1492, how far the Taino lands and influence stretched. And then we had the influx of colonialism. So how do you kind of um, navigate those two halves, the native half and the post-colonial native half? Well, it's really uh, a big challenge for Tainos because other native, at a recent Native American conference, I encountered people who didn't uh, encounter whites until the early 1900s. And we so, still have uncontacted tribes right. around the world. And they have much of their uh, culture still, you know, together, their language, their music, the ceremonies. And they sometimes find it difficult to appreciate the situation of people like the Tainos who um been under co 
colonial uh, film for more than five centuries and are now just trying to re, uh, re retrieve uh, their culture. But a lot of it's still there. For example, you speak Taino words every day. Um, Tabaco, Huracan, Canoa, Manati, Savannah, Iguana, I can go on and on. Uh, Fujii, Yuca, Papaya, uh, Yautia, all those are Taino, Maiz. And those of you in the audience who practice either Santeria or Espiritismo, some of those elements are Taino. The use of the tobacco, the cigar, the despojos, cleaning off of the evil spirits, that's Taino as well. And I mentioned I recently attended a Native American conference, and they said before we start our workshop, we have to um, point out we have to abide by Native American protocol. We can't do this, we can't do that. And the last of all was, by the way, when you point at somebody, point Indian way with the lips. You can't see that on, on the air. <laughs> but lip pointing is indigenous. And it's something that uh, is still very heavy in our culture. I remember, you know, my mother, my grandmother, go get me that. And they would point with their mouth or their lips. And you see that across islands as well. It's actually a Filipino thing as well. I had a friend from the Philippines day. And she did that action. I was like, we do that. Yeah. So seeing how um, our culture and actions are reflected across the world is always something really beautiful to see us connected mm -hmm. to each other. So um, what was what was I going to ask next? So we talked about your book. We talked about you growing up in the Bronx. Um, so... Tell me a little bit about the challenges today in the 21st century in the age of technology. What challenges are you facing in the Taino revival movement? Well, first of all, the challenges that all people encounter, especially parents with their children who are seem to be slaves to their phones. And by the way, I don't have an iPhone. Okay, well, I have my flip phone. And they're really hooked on technology. And we have to cultivate and encourage more one-on-one -on -one communication between people. Make it personal. In my travels uh, across the country, I have sat down with many an elder and gathered up some wonderful stories. Stories that you can't find in Google, all right? Uh, you have to go out there, talk to people, listen to people, and sometimes sit down and talk with people you may not agree with. One thing, last year I visited the University of Mississippi, and I told the audience, listen, I'm a Puerto Rican Taino who grew up in the South Bronx. If you're a white man from Mississippi, you and I can't have the same points of view. You can't you can't have the same perspectives uh, because of our the environments that we grew up in. But you can respect each other. Right, and we can listen to each other. So I was pleasantly surprised. At the University of Mississippi, number one, they have a LGBT club on campus, and they have they're having an ongoing dialogue about Black Lives Matter, which gives me hope for the future, uh, despite what's going on. But the, the greatest thing was there's a statue of uh, James Meredith on campus, and he was a civil rights worker who was killed in the 60s. And someone, before I appeared there, uh, put a noose around the neck of the statue. Mm. You know, actually, at my school, American University in D.C., which is supposed to be not a southern yeah. town, same thing. Last year, we found multiple nooses on campus. One student, um, a boy, burst into her yeah. dorm room and threw a banana at her and so this you know there are these kinds of events happening on campuses across the United States and it's despicable disgusting and terrifying for students of color well the amazing thing was when I was there they sent the man to jail they found him they no if I said well when I was coming up they either would give him a medal or give him a slap on the wrist but times have changed yeah they involved the FBI at American University they mm. called the FBI they I don't know if they found him or, or what came of that, but yes, their schools are responding strongly and saying, no, this is not a space for that kind of hatred. Mm -hmm. And here in the Bronx, you have uh, ongoing dialogues about that uh, at certain schools that will not be mentioned. And But that's, that, 
that's across the country. You know, um, all you have to do is have a, a white student walk on campus with make it make America great again, and that sparks off. You know, dialogue that's not always friendly. You know, it's a it's a different age we live in. So, I go on different campuses. I talk about the Taino. I talk about Native Americans, but I also do storytelling for children. Yes, I do want to talk about that. But first, um, what is the biggest misconception for ad- from adults that you find about, first of all, about you being from the Bronx, and second of all, about Native culture? Okay, when I say, when I travel and say I'm from the Bronx, people step back. <laughs> they have all kind about of... About five inches, right? About a, a knife's width. <laughs> misconceptions. And I said, you know what? When I told the people in the Bronx I was going to go to Mississippi, they, they took five steps back. You know, so I said, there's a lot of misconceptions uh, about different segments of our society, uh, different areas that uh, are not true. I felt very safe walking down the streets of Oxford, Mississippi. It's just as safe as I felt walking down the streets of the Bronx. And when I talk about my native heritage, I get different responses. Many of the native people accept it's it's ironic. I get more acceptance from native people across the country than I get from my own people here. So when I tell a fellow Puerto Rican or Dominican Dampino, ah, they no longer exist. But say I, I speak uh, someone who's Cherokee or Diné, they say, oh yeah, we have stories about your people. Let me tell you something. But there's a protocol about storytelling. When someone tells me a story, I have to ask permission if I could pass the story on. And if I'm told no, it stays with me until the grave. Wow, you know, I've never heard that before. Almost giving uh, agency to the story itself, to the lived experience. Well, I guess the most commonly mistake that people make, I'll ask you, where did Native Americans come from? They're first peoples. They were always here. Okay. That's so the way I've, I've, I've learned it. Well, when you go to the, open up your history books and go to your history classes, they'll tell you, oh, Native peoples came across the Bering Straits. If you ever want to get a Native person angry, tell her or him, you came across the, from the Russia. Bering Straits. And they call that the BS theory. Uh, when I was coming up, they said, oh, they came here 10, 12,000 years ago. Then they said 25,000. Now they say maybe 45,000. And we're saying one day they'll come around to our way of thinking. We've always been here and nowhere else. I was right. Okay. I was okay. right. <laughs> and- I thought I was worried I was wrong. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, I agree. Um, I, I was taught that in, in, in high school and middle school that, um, you know, we don't know where people came from. We think, you know, all humanities originally you know in Africa and then they went up to Russia and they went across the Bering Strait and came into the United States um, and yeah. and it is a form of erasure um, to not recognize the length of time that um, Native people have been in the Americas because their length of time that they've been there is part of what gives them the agency over this land so when you remove that you remove their history you remove their agency over the land that they care for now so we talked about misconceptions um, so I'm uh, 14% Taino according to 23andMe you know if, if you if you believe the DNA sequencing numbers. Um, we have to be very careful about that. People ask me, so what are your DNA numbers? I said, there's more skepticism about what those companies do with your DNA samples. Yeah, yeah. All right, so some of us have been very reluctant to take a swab with a Q-tip in our mouth and hand it over. And also, like, the percentage doesn't translate to who you are as a person or what, you know, who you are culturally. But it was it was good for me personally because I 
don't know much about my father and his family. Uh So it was good for me to see my ancestors on my dad's side, not through stories, through pictures, but through my DNA. Um, But you have to be very careful with that. So a person recently told me, Bobby, I'm so disappointed. I said, why? And my family's oral tradition, we're told that we had some Mohawk ancestry, but my DNA came back 100% European. I said, uh-uh, uh-uh. There's I no said, such thing. I said, listen, it's very possible that your oral history is correct because the Mohawks were well known for raiding other peoples, including African Americans, whites, and other native groups, taking captives back home and accepting them as one a citizen of their nation. Mm-hmm. So it's very possible that one of your ancestors, who was Caucasian, was taken in a raid and brought it into the nation and grew up as a Mohawk. And all the DNA test is, is a puzzle piece, right? Mm-hmm. If you're putting together who you are in terms of identity, right? You have so many pieces. You have your oral traditions. You have your family members. You have pictures and stories or, you know, whatever you do have. This is just one piece of that puzzle. Um, so yeah. I wouldn't rely fully on and it. And I wonder because a number of Native people say that some of our ancestors came from up there. Some stories say some of our ancestors came from Pleiades. How do you determine the DNA of someone that came from Pleiades up in the constellations? Hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but so I, you know, I knew from my mom's stories that my grandmother on my mom's side had straight black hair and all the Taino, traditional Taino features, quote unquote. And so now I'm getting married in August to Nad and I, we're going to start a family and have kids. And I wanted to talk to you about the role, um, our role as people who may or may not have native, his native ancestry, our role as parents, future parents in preserving that culture. So tell me about your storytelling for kids. Tell me about how we preserve that culture in our children. Well, before I begin that, I didn't realize many years later, there's one Taino tradition that my parents abided by. They never, ever hit us, my brothers and I. And I found out later that's a Taino tradition and among most Native peoples. Uh, they were shocked when Europeans came here and they brought their children and yelled at them and struck them and we were we were taken aback. So how could you do that, you know? Um, and I didn't realize that that's something that my parents kept and when I go into um, the schools some as young as pre-k I bring in these hand puppets and tell them these stories about the Taino and other native peoples and they highlight the interrelationship we have with mother nature and other creatures and with each other and show them through entertaining stories how the culture is still very much alive and that for native people 500 years ago is the day before yesterday and 500 years from now is the day after tomorrow and I'm impress upon the young ones to be proud of who they are and where they come from and sometimes I talk with Mexican children because uh, we have such a, a wide variety of Latin American children here and with African American children and I told them how many of them have even though they may not be aware of it Cherokee or Choctaw blood and they should start asking, especially if, they, if their parents come from down south and they should do some investigating and I, and usually there's a story oh yeah grandma had this straight here uh, Jimi Hendrix is in the Native American Music Hall of Fame he had a Cherokee grandmother I didn't know that yeah who also is in the Native American uh, Music Hall of Fame. You ever hear of Richie Valens? He had a big hit called La Bamba back in the 50s. And they found out he was Yaqui Indian from Mexico. Wow. So it goes across the board, across African uh, American uh, people and so-called Latino. There's a rich native heritage. And I think that's something that I do recommend for people to do. Even if you think you know that you're two quarters Irish, three, yeah. whatever. Even if you think you know what your background is, I encourage everyone to really try to put together a comprehensive, you know, family tree and 
get everything together and you may learn something new about your family and yourself. Right. So my mother passed on an oral tradition from her side of the family that we were descended from Gofredesi, who was uh, a pirate in Puerto Rico in the 1700s. He was like uh, their version of Robin Hood. Wow. But I said, Mom, in everything I read, he was fair-skinned and had hazel eyes. She says, that's not true. He was a mestizo. He had brown skin, but they changed the story so it could be accepted by those in power. At American when I spoke there a few years ago? No, I just started. I only did three years there. That might have been about three years and ago. And I just came back. That was the day they shut the place down when someone started shooting the naval base or something? No, that was more, yeah. I remember that, but I was here for that. Okay, I was up there when that was Because the naval base was uh, is pretty close. It's right south of the cathedral. I was lucky that I took the train up down there and not the plane. They shut down the airport. Wow. Okay, what else? I have hit most of my points. Um, well, you didn't mention the powwows I put on. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I have that. I have that here. Yes, lady. So we talked about children and what we should do for our children. Um, oh, by the way, uh, you have a lovely little dog. The Tainos had the most unique dog in the annals of humankind. We had a mute dog called the Ayon, spelled A-O-N, and it didn't bark. And Columbus complained that when he bought Spanish dogs and they began to associate with the Taino dogs, they stopped barking. Yeah. But they no longer exist because during the starving times of the early 1500s, dinner was served. The Wow. Yeah, Navi's a good dog. He just wants so much attention. <laughs> yeah, children back then had their own pets. They had the Ayong. They had, uh, of course, there were a lot more parrots. Yeah, they had birds and monkeys, right? The monkeys we didn't have. All right, they the monkeys were found in South America. They have monkeys now, but they were imported. Okay. So they're not indigenous to the Caribbean islands. But the parrots, they would keep as pets. Oh, yes. Uh, they had different names, including guacamayo. And it was the job of the boy, of the family, one of the boys, to go hunt for parrots. You, you wanted them for two reasons. Number one, you wanted the feathers, of course, to wear uh, for ador body adornment and also for uh, for dinner. For meat. Yeah, uh, there weren't many sources of protein on the land in those days. The largest source of protein was the iguana, which could be like six feet long. But uh, it's not easy to capture a six-foot iguana. They're fast. Yeah, and they can if they don't bite you, they'll whip you with that tail. Or they'll scratch you with those talons. And if you try to grab them by the tail, you may find yourself with a tail in your hand and the iguana's gone and it it, it, it can grow back the tail, all right? So most of our protein in those days came from the sea, uh, the shark, uh, the manatee, tuna. How do you say shark in Spanish? Tiburon. That ain't a word, all right? That's another legacy. And whenever I track down a Spanish professor, I say, what did they call tiburon before 1492? No one knows the answer because they have sharks in the Mediterranean. Yeah. But there were no dictionaries as yet at that time. So the Spaniards called. What did, what did they call shark in Spain before 1492? Yeah. Ah. Good question. I, I tried Googling, so forget about it. Don't try it. <laughs> awesome. So what else? Let's talk about, yeah, let's talk about the powwows that you host. You host the Bronx Native American Festival. You also had one recently at Fordham University. Right. Well, this first started with me back in the 19, late 1980s. I was a member of the committee that used to organize the powwow over in Inwood Park and got experience doing that. And then in the early 90s, I began a series in the Bronx at Van Cortland Park. And then we moved over to Pelham Bay Park, which we are now. So I've been doing over 20 years. Native American Festival, we have native singers, dancers, food vendors. And now starting this last year, uh, I've begun a new series at 
Fordham University. So in 2018, uh, the Native Festival in Palm Bay Park will take place on Sunday, September the 30th. And the one in Fordham University will take place on some date to be announced in November, okay. in the fall. And they'll be there from North Central and South America. And a lot of great music, dancing, a lot of good food. And what do you hope to bring about with these festivals, with these powwows? Well, it's a, a unique opportunity for non-natives to interact with natives uh, and to share stories, to share each other culture. It's a funny thing. At the Fordham University uh, powwow, uh, we brought in food, Mexican food. And the drummers who are all from the North just love that Mexican food. <laughs> and I tell people, people ask me once in a while, Bobby, I'm in the Bronx. Where can I get some good Native American food? I said, that's easy. Go to a Mexican restaurant. Tacos, burritos, enchiladas, all that is good Indian food, all right? Don't go to Taco Bell. That, that's <laughs> fake. So it, it really is a wonderful opportunity to uh, for the two groups to share, to find out what they have in common and what differences they have uh, that they can bridge. Yeah, and I think that that bridging really does enable people to be more empathetic and to understand what other people are going through, especially um, a lot of the issues that natives are facing today mm -hmm. um, with displacement of land, with we had the Keystone Pipeline. We There's a lot of injustices that the Native community in, the main, in, in North America still faces and across the world. And you have to be very careful. A lot of people get the news from online and there is a lot of misinformation about what's going on in the Native community out there. You have to be very careful. Uh, there was a, a news story, I don't know if you saw it, but last month there were about a half dozen so alleged Native American news services online that originated from the Ukraine. Wow. And once that was put out, those those sites just disappeared. So you have to be very careful. My favorite uh, news source online on Facebook is called, it's one word, censored news. And you know they're good because once in a while they'll post a story and Facebook will delete it. That's wow. how, you know, dangerous they are. I know. So you mentioned the Keystone Pipeline. They posted photographs of uh, law enforcement people or private contractors who uh, physically abused Native people who were there on the doing a peaceful demonstration. So that was taken down. So you know that's real news. So I like censored news. And what's so what's your next step? What are you looking for to looking forward to? What do you what is your next project? Uh, my next project is my wife keeps telling me write a new book, write a new book. And right now it's um ruminating in my mind. I wanna write a children's book. Uh I've heard that from some people a book for the young ones, young ones, and I see where Juno Diaz just came out with a new book. Yes, and it's a children's book. So yes, Juno Diaz's new children's book is wildly successful, and I think that it is important that we communicate these more adult topics of culture, of culture, and of our lives to our children. Which reminds me, once I was at a school and there was a Q&A when I finished my storytelling. And one of the children asked me, Mr. Gonzalez, is it true that the pilgrims were bad people to the natives? And I looked at the teacher and the teacher told me, tell them, you know, uh, we should never lie to them. So I, so I told the child, yes, well, let me tell you this. The pilgrims were grave robbers and slave traders, and they went on into it. But I'm very careful. So, at another instance, at another school, a child asked me, was Columbus as bad as they say? And the teacher crossed her arms and gave me a look that told me, watch it. So I said, okay. What I did was, I told the child, as you grow older, read different books. They'll give you different perspectives on Columbus. Some say he was good, some say he's bad, and you draw your own conclusions. 
yeah, you do have to balance what a child of a certain age group can handle or understand with still exposing them to what the truth is and not lying. Right. So another time I was doing storytelling for, it was out in Queens. And afterwards I spoke with a Guatemalan young boy. He was about 10 years old. And I told him, when you're older, ask your mother what happened in Guatemala, the genocide of war in the 1980s. And the mother overheard me and said, I already told him everything. Wow. So I said, I was relieved to hear that. And I'm glad that she, because a lot of People keep that story to themselves. Uh, some of it's understandable. It's very hard memories. It's like people who survived the Holocaust, they want to discuss it. So we have to, you know, un un understand why people are afraid to retell those stories, bring back the pain. And it is, it's so hard to bring back the pain, but unless we tell our children these stories, we're doomed to repeat them again. And if we really, you know, if we really want to respect our experience of what we've been through, then we don't want our children to feel that pain again or to feel what, to go what we went through because we've already been through it. Well, thank you, Bobby, for coming in and for talking about Taino culture. Um, is there anything you want to add before I before I do the closeout? Yes, for those of you who don't live in the Bronx that have been here, please come and visit us. We have so much to share. Culture, music, food, and a lot of wonderful people. Absolutely. And thank you again, Bobby, for coming on and talking about your work and preserving Taino culture. Again, this was Bobby Gonzalez, author, multicultural, motivational speaker, poet, storyteller, and someone who's preserving Native culture in the 21st century. And don't forget, visit my website, yep. bobbygonzalez.com. And two books that you can pick up anywhere books are sold or on Amazon, The Last Puerto Rican Indian and Taino Zen. And I'll include his Twitter on um, in the description for this podcast. Thanks again for joining us, listeners. Thank you.